I got words. I got words. Hello, world. Welcome to another episode of Pablo Speaks, the podcast where words are weaponized to inspire and edutain. In this episode, I'm going to switch gears from poetry to prose and narrate part one of my three part essay, New Lots to White Plains. The year is 2014. The economy sucks. I'm forced to close my failing retail store in Macon, Georgia. I have two sons to support in college. My health is fair to cloudy on a good day. I'm qualified for a mid-level management or marketing job, but all my online applications are rejected with the same canned email. After careful consideration, blah, 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 you know the rest. Well, all except one, a commission sales gig at Nordstrom's in White Plains, New York. I take it. And thus began my return to Brooklyn, the storied city where my immigrant dreams started way back in 1985. The caption for my three-part essay reads, Urban Tales of Life in New York City from the Diary of James Paul Sr. That's me. Here is part one. I got words. The pace of New York City is palpable and shocking to first-time visitors from rustic, slower parts of the country and world, especially on workdays. Keep up or get out the way. It's the determined pace of people chasing dollars, dreams, and a bigger slice of a juicy red fruit that symbolizes the aspirational essence of the city. Call it fast, call it rude, call it loud, but don't you ever call it soft. Not this city of Iron Mike Tyson, John Teflon Don Gotti, Malcolm X and Jay-Z. Not this storied birthplace of hip-hop and breakdancing, where it's blacker than midnight on Broadway and Myrtle, where poets, pimps, and politicians ride subway trains from New Lots to Harlem, where Jackie Robinson broke the color line at Brooklyn's Ebbets Field, and Sean Puff Daddy Combs flipped an internship at Uptown Records into a billion on Wall Street. I got words. Today I'm chasing a few hundred in commission at Nordstrom's in White Plains, a mixed shopping and residential city in the suburbs of Westchester County, New York, about 28 miles north of Manhattan. It's roughly a two-hour commute from Brooklyn, 30 minutes on foot, 60 on three different trains, plus another 30 as cushion in case shit happens. And shit always happens in New York. Yeah, I know you're thinking, that's a pretty long-ass ride for a few hundred bucks, or significantly less if business is really slow in men's clothing at Nordy's. But a man's got to do what a man's got to do, right? Bills and the landlord don't give a fuck where you work as long as they get paid. 
They don't care that you have an MBA or PhD and can't find a better job cause the economy stinks. So you suck it up, put on your winter gear and schlep it through ice, sleet, snow and that omnipresent stream of hustlers peddling everything from mixed CDs to salvation. That's what New Yorkers do. We don't waste time whining. We stay on the grind until we find that dream gig like Diddy. I got words. I leave my sister's crib on Atkins Avenue promptly at 5.45 a.m. and walk several blocks to the first and last stop of the number three train, Nulatz Avenue. It's the morning after a nasty snowstorm that dropped five inches on rooftops, parked cars, streets, and sidewalks. It's freaking cold, single-digit cold, with a wind chill of minus 10. Yep, it's definitely a day for the full winter gear. Waterproof boots, check. Scarf, check. Gloves, Check. Thermals. Check. Multiple layers and the big fleece coat with fake fur on the hood. Check, check, check. Alternate side of the street parking is suspended indefinitely. A few residents shovel snow off stoops and driveways. Some clear paths on the sidewalk and around parked cars, sprinkling rock salt to aid traction. A fat black stray cat scampers across Atkins Avenue near the stop sign, right in front of me, awakening my superstitions. I slow down and look around. This is the corner where fat-ass hookers and heels hang out late at night, even in the chill of winter. And you'd better believe that strapped pimp with the short fuse ain't far away. You learn to stay alert in the hood. It's dark and damp, and yes, cold. It's worth repeating. The streetlights are still on. Dawn and the sun are an hour away. I shuffle along, making short, safe steps on the makeshift path of footprints made by pedestrians ahead of me. I see my breath in the air white cloudy puffs of condensation. My thoughts flash momentarily on that hot cup of coffee and cinnamon raisin bagel awaiting me at my favorite deli at Grand Central Station. Mm, two trains away, but worth the wait. I got words. I pick up a copy of the Daily News from the corner store next to the stairs rising 30 feet to the elevated station over Nulatz Avenue. The young man behind the counter has a thick Indian accent. Anything else, boss man? Coffee? Donut? Nah, I'm good, I reply, grabbing my change. I never quite got around to eating breakfast items from corner stores in the hood. Call me picky. Call me a germaphobe. I don't care. But Sunil 
Abdu or Jose. Yeah, it seems like all the corner joints in East New York are owned and operated by East Indians, Arabs, or Hispanics. God bless them. They're good for my lotto tickets, scratch-offs, newspapers, and candy, or even a six-pack if I'm desperate. But breakfast? Nah, I don't think so. I run up the stairs, push through graffiti-stained doors, and slide my metro card at the turnstile. I join a small crowd huddled inside the warm tower, awaiting the arrival of the train on the platform above. I briefly scan the black and brown faces wrapped in scarves or under beanies and hoodies, making an extra effort not to stare. Everyone's in their own private zone, eyes glued to iPhones and Samsungs, heads bopping, wrapped in Beats by Dre or much cheaper knockoffs. These are the faces of Brooklyn, of New York, faces wearing don't fuck with me expressions, a learned survival shield described as mean by some, hard by others, but they're just minding their business, New York style. I got word. Minutes later, the number three train pulls into the terminal, triggering the morning rush to board and snag premium seats. Some commuters walk directly to the opposite side. They stand near the closed sliding doors, grasping overhead pivot handles and rails for support. They are well positioned for a quick exit and transfer at Utica or Franklin to the uptown number four. I join them, unzipping my coat, loosening my scarf. More commuters stream on board. A bell sounds and a female voice with a tropical Trini accent is heard over the intercom. This is the number three train to Harlem 148th Street, Van Sicklin Avenue next. Watch the closing doors. A short, stocky Spanish dude, Puerto Rican or maybe Dominican, rocking a black bomber jacket and tan timberlands, holds the doors open for his mamacita, young son, and baby in a stroller wrapped in a pink blanket. Two black brothers in the corner give up their seats like gentlemen to the lady and her toddler. Thank you, she says politely and sits down. Her son climbs up next to her. Dad leans against a silver pole in the aisle holding the stroller beside him. Our eyes lock momentarily. I stare, then look away. Something isn't right. I got words. The train departs, screeching and lurching along steel rails high over Brooklyn. It's still dark outside. Multi-level brick buildings lining the tracks zoom in, then recede as we move through New Lots, then Brownsville, home of Iron Mike Tyson. The high crime hood where young Mike and his gang, the Jolly Stompers, cleaned out cash registers at gunpoint in the late 70s. By 79, Mike had been arrested more than 30 times for petty crimes and street fights. 
He was only 13 when he was shipped off to Tryon, a juvenile prison 200 miles away in Fulton County. It was here that he learned how to box, channeling his rage in 13-inch fists to become a vicious knockout artist. By 87, his record as a pro was 30 and 0. His earnings, over 200 million bucks. Not bad for a young gangbanger from Brownsville. I got words. I ain't the killer, but don't push me. Revenge is like the sweetest joy next to getting I recognize the lyrics of Tupac's Hail Mary, but the voice rapping out loud on the train had a Spanish accent. My roving eyes lock with the Spanish dude again. The one holding the stroller. He glares back, head bopping under a black beanie with the New York logo and red beats. The right side of his face twitches involuntarily a few times. This guy's crazy, I think to myself, averting my eyes again. Mamacita shifts uncomfortably in her seat. She hugs her son, pulling him closer to her side. They know he's crazy too. Now pay attention, rest in peace, father. I'm a ghost in these killing fields. No one says a word to him. This is Brooklyn. Shit happens. I got words. The number three train enters a dimly lit underground tunnel as we near Utica. Early rush hour is in full effect. Utica, a subterranean station with uptown and downtown tracks, is jammed with commuters heading to work or school or wherever Brooklynites go on a train at 6.15 a.m. on a cold Monday morning in January. The double doors slide open. Transfer riders rush out to catch the number four uptown sitting on the tracks across the platform. The crazy Spanish dude and his crew are among them. A few passengers exchange glances, shaking their heads. Another wave of commuters squeeze on board the number three, including two bearded Hasidic men in long black coats and black white brim hats. We must be in Crown Heights, I mused to myself. The doors close again and we're off. Franklin's just three stops away. I decide to transfer there to the number four. After a quick glance at the subway map on the wall, I continue reading my paper. A casual observer would have noticed that prior to the entrance of the two Jewish men at Utica, all of the riders on the number three to Harlem were either black or brown, emblematic of the segregation that persists in large sections of Brooklyn. Neighborhoods that were predominantly white in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Neighborhoods from which whites fled in droves when black and brown people moved in. Government-aided white flight depleted Brooklyn of a significant number of affluent white residents and contributed to the urban decay of the 70s and 80s. Gentrification 
is bringing them all back. I got words. The underground platform at Franklin is filled with white hipsters now. This is the Clinton Hill Bed-Stuy neighborhood where Christopher Wallace ran the streets dealing crack cocaine before he blew up as platinum-selling rapper Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls. Christopher and his Jamaican parents lived here in the 80s at 226 St. James Place, apartment 3L. The monthly rent back then was $750. That's $750. If Biggie were to experience life after death today, he would be blown away by the outrageous six-figure price tag on the immaculate three-bedroom, one-bath, fully renovated luxury condo at 3L. That's the gentrification effect. It's rapidly transforming Brooklyn neighborhoods into the high-priced domain of rich white hipsters, displacing poor and lower middle-class black and brown tenants many of whom were living there before Biggie was born in 1972. Yeah, Biggie, things done change. I got words. I switched trains at Franklin, hopping on the Manhattan-bound number four Lexington Avenue Express. It's also packed with commuters, an eclectic mix of ethnicities that truly reflects the raw, rich diversity of New York City. I overhear conversations in at least five different languages. Every layer of the labor force is represented here. Janitors, judges, lawyers, librarians, clerks, CEOs, rappers, rabbis, doormen, doctors, professors, police officers, tellers, traders, engineers, electricians, scientists, and yes, salesmen. They may live in largely segregated neighborhoods or worship in largely segregated churches, mosques, and synagogues. But on this train, on this cold morning in January, they are all New Yorkers, chasing dollars, dreams, and the biggest slice of the Big Apple. I got word. A blur of white tiles, hanging signs, and faces flash by as the train accelerates to speeds over 30 miles an hour, bypassing local stations under downtown Brooklyn. My digital watch flashes 6.25 a.m. We are about to enter one of the great engineering marvels of the world. The Duralamon Street Tunnel, formerly the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel under the East River, it took four long years, from 1903 to 1907, to build this spectacular subterranean connector between Brooklyn and Manhattan, through which a million people travel daily, and most take for granted. But to this immigrant from a poor third world nation, with floating bridges and horse-drawn carts, this tunnel is, in a word, amazing. I got words. 
Thanks so much for listening to another bonus episode of Pablo Speaks, the podcast where words influence thoughts, influence actions. This concludes part one of my three-part series titled New Lots to White Plains, Urban Tales from the Diaries of James Paul Sr. Please remember to answer the Q&A and poll at the end of this and every podcast. Meanwhile, I'm happy to announce that my Pablo Speaks podcast is now available on Apple Music, Amazon Music, YouTube Music, iHeart.com, and of course, Spotify, where it all began. My regular weekly podcast drops on Sundays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on these platforms. Please spread the word. All are invited to Pablo Speaks. Part two of the New Lots to White Plains series will be published next Tuesday, December 26th. I wish you all a Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, or Happy Holidays. Pick one. Finally, please remember to take some time to experience the joy of family and friends, not only during the holidays, but every day of the year. Enjoy your gift of life while you have it. Ayo. I got words. 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 I got words, I got words in my head. Every word I've read, I got words in the oven, baking.